Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. There's another host that is joining me today, Daniel Sun. Sup, guys. Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say that if you would like to support the show, then there's a few ways that you can do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 96 extra Patreon episodes, which is over 130 extra hours of listening pleasure. So to see this full list of Patreon episodes, just go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on the Patreon episodes tab. There, you can see the entire list of Patreon episodes that we have previously published. Also, today we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is over shadow people, in which we discuss the different types of shadow people, some ways to protect yourself, and then we go over some photographs of shadow people into some videos and then into theories, so you get access to that episode as well as all of the others for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you would like to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes or on Spotify, and that helps us out a ton. And I really love it when you do that. It really gets me going. However, don't feel pressured to leave us one if you don't want to. That's perfectly fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is over the time traveler Paul Dinoch. Now, how this episode will go today is that we'll talk about who Paul is and then his story about how he supposedly traveled to the future and then we'll go over everything that had happened in between the years of 1922 all the way until the year 4000. So you get to know everything about the future of humanity. Congratulations. And then we'll go into strange facts and findings, theories, and then, of course, wrap it all up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. In the spring of 1922, an individual named Paul fell into a coma. Twelve months later, he would wake up from this coma and make some remarkable claims. Claims that he had traveled to the year 3906, where he learned about the future of humanity. Witnessing the nightmare of overpopulation, world wars, a colony on Mars, and other various things. This testimony was taken seriously by a secret society who managed to keep the writings and these claims made by Paul a secret for almost two decades. This is the story of the man who traveled to the year 3906, Paul Dinah. 
All right. So before we dive into the juicy details of what happens to humanity all the way up until the year 3906, let's first talk about Paul and learn how he ended up in a coma, which in turn gave him the ability to travel in the future. Okay, so Dan, can you start it off for us and tell us a little bit about Paul? So Paul Dinot was born in Zurich, Switzerland in the year 1886. Paul's mother was from Austria and his father was from right there in Switzerland. Now, when Paul was a teenager, he would stare out of his window at a house next door. Located at this house was a girl named Anne, who was only a year or two younger than him. And side note real quick, all of the podcasts that I have listened to about this episode and every single YouTube video that I've watched over this individual, everyone says that this girl's name is Anna. That is not true. The girl's name is Anne because I read the entire diary of Paul. So that's just a little FYI. All right, so Paul became infatuated with this girl, wondering who she was and wanting to meet her, but he was like too shy to even say hi. Eventually, Anne's brother, who was the same age as Paul, invited him over to hang out. And that is when Paul and Anne would officially meet. Now, the two immediately hit it off, and Paul from then on, would frequently go over to Anne's to sort of like hang out. Which, side note, uh, every time Paul would go over there to hang out with Anne, she would give him a gift, such as travel books, colored pencils, and other various things. So Paul ended up graduating high school and then went to college, where he studied to become a teacher of languages, primarily the German and French languages. Eventually, after being gone for two years, Paul finished college and came back home. When he got back, he and Anne met back up and they started hanging out again. They ended up falling in love, and around that same time, Paul got offered a position at a school. He ended up taking the job and was kind of like pretty happy about it, because finally, he was financially independent. And because of that, he was able to travel back home to see Anne about every three months or so. Also, all of the money that Paul was earning as being a teacher at this school, he was saving up in order to buy a house and eventually start a life with Anne. All right, so fast forward around a year later, Anne's mother passes away. However, right before she passed away, her last wish from her deathbed was for Anne to listen to her father. Of course, Anne took this to heart and promised her mother that she would. Shortly after that, a man appeared and asked Anne's father for her hand in marriage. Anne was like, eh, I'm good. But her father begged for her to accept, saying that, hey, this guy is, you know, he's very wealthy. You know, he'll be a great husband to you. However, Anne still refused to marry the guy. Anne's father just kept begging her for months to marry this guy. And eventually she did agree. Now, Paul at the time was still living pretty far away and working as a teacher. So he really didn't know this was occurring at all. But when he found out, eh, he was pretty heartbroken about it. So a few months later, Anne got married, and it was during this period that Paul just decided to stay indoors and not talk to anyone. He isolated himself for over a year, not talking to a single person or even leaving his house. He even stopped giving a shit about his haircuts or trimming his beard or even showering. His hair and beard grew so long that they ended up growing to his chest length. And side note, I do have to say, you're probably wondering, what the hell does this story have to do with time traveling? Like, why are you telling me the entire backstory of Paul Dinoch? 
this plays a part in his time travel experience, okay? So just hang on for the ride, and trust me, it all pays off. All right, so continuing on. Fast forward a year later. In 1909, Paul heard a knock on his front door. While he was looking like Robin Williams from Jumanji, you know, hair all grown out and stuff, he decided to answer it. There standing at the door was Anne's best friend, Amelia, and she had some bad news. Amelia told Paul that Anne was very sick and she didn't have much time left. So Paul immediately went over to Anne's and visited her bedside. Anne told him about how sorry she was and that what she did had been a burden in her soul since and asked Paul to forgive her, which, of course, he did. Then Anne told Paul, Do not forget me. If you stay true to our love and don't forsake me, I'll never leave you alone. I'll be right by your side, Paul. Whenever you need me, I'll be there. Isn't that a song? Anyway. All right, so that was the last thing that Anne told Paul. So he ended up leaving her house and going back home. Four days later, Anne died. Following Anne dying, Paul, of course, fell into a deep depression that lasted for years. Then in 1914, World War I broke out. However, Switzerland was neutral during the war, so he didn't have to worry about, you know, going into war. So fast forward to the morning of January 3rd, 1917. Paul's mother goes into his room, like, hey, Paul, what are you, whoa. She sees her son laying on the ground unconscious. So Paul immediately gets taken to the local hospital where he spends the next 14 days in a coma. On January 17, 1917, Paul came out of his coma and didn't know what had happened. The doctor told him that he was in a coma for the past 14 days. What Paul had contracted was encephalitis lethargica. Now, real quick, let us hit you with some knowledge nuggets about this neurological syndrome that Paul had contracted. So encephalitis lethargica is commonly known as the sleeping sickness, and it originally appeared in late 1916 in Austria, only a few months prior to Paul contracting it. This disease went on to ravage Europe from 1916 until the 1930s, and it became a pandemic, which also the Spanish flu was another thing that was a pandemic during this time. All right, so this encephalitis caused brain inflammation, confusion, and of course, sleepiness. Now, this next part is very important, okay? So this disease has two stages. It has an acute stage and a chronic stage. And I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with time travel? Trust me, it all plays a role. Just put your trust in me and we will go into this together, okay? So this encephalitis has two stages, as the acute stage and the chronic stage. So during the acute stage, people who have contracted it typically would present a gradual onset of certain symptoms that are similar to the flu, such as a fever, shivering, vertigo, and headaches. Now, following that, it could be anywhere from few days to even just a few hours of having those flu-like symptoms that the neurological symptoms would follow. This is where patients would get extremely sleepy and start having like movement disorders and then they would sometimes fall into a coma. And that is what Paul had just experienced, the acute stage where he fell into a coma for 14 days. So Dan, tell us about the chronic stage. Now the chronic phase happens after the acute stage. So what happens is that the person gets the disease, they have the acute phase. 
Then after they recover, the chronic phase happens, which could occur months to years later. All right. So those are the both stages of encephalitis lethargica. And like we stated, Paul had just woken up and he had just experienced the acute phase. So following that of him waking up, Paul started to recover from this disease. And this is when he began keeping a diary. Now, in this diary, he would often talk about Anne and how lonely he was and how much he missed her and how much he just wished that she didn't pass away. He was like totally in love with her. And I read his diary as long as hell. But the first part of his diary is nothing but him talking about how much he loved her and stuff. So, yeah. Eventually, in early 1919, Paul decided to go see a priest to talk about the issues that he was having. He told the priest that it had been 10 years since Anne had passed away and that she had never given him a sign that she was with him. Now, the next part is straight from Paul's diary, so just keep that in mind. So the priest told Paul, and we quote, If you're looking for shelter from the moments of pain, I have nothing else to offer you other than faith. All these years, you have been overlooking and consuming yourself at the expense of your mental health. Why? Do you consider this healthy or right? You need a sign. Why should creation reveal its secrets to you? And why, with the sole excuse of lacking signs, do you discard them altogether? And how are you sure that they haven't been revealed to you, but you have been too blind to notice or even understand them? So that's what the priest said to him. What the priest had told Paul left him speechless. Paul said in his diary that he went home that night and said a prayer. He asked the Lord to show him that his doubts were unjustified, but nothing happened. Then all of a sudden, he said, and I quote, Then I cried. I managed to cry. Could that have been the sign I was looking for? Yeah, he said that him crying was a sign that Anne was with him. Was he not able to cry like that whole time? I mean, he didn't really state that in his diary, but I assume by him saying that I cried, I managed to cry, means that he wasn't previously able to. Okay. All right, so for the next year or so, Paul's encephalitis started to enter into the chronic stage, and he started falling asleep spontaneously, sometimes for just a few minutes, other times for days on end. And just a side note, Paul stated that whenever he would randomly fall asleep, when he would wake up from that, he would never remember what he had previously dreamed. So just keep that in your back pocket as we go forward. So in May of 1921, Paul's disease worsened and he ended up falling asleep and slipping into another coma. He was taken to a hospital in Zurich where he was constantly monitored. He would stay in this coma for over 12 months and during this time, doctors would feed him through a feeding tube and monitor him constantly. Eventually, out of the blue, in May of 1922, Paul came out of his coma. When he woke up, he had found out that he had been essentially asleep for a year and that during that period, his mother had passed away. Also, he had been diagnosed with tuberculosis, which it was stated that he had probably caught this while he was in the hospital in his coma. Damn. So, Paul spent the next month or so recovering from being in a coma for so long. And he doesn't really talk about what happened to him while in this coma. Now, just keep that in mind 
okay? But something did happen to him, which we'll talk about later. By the fall of 1922, Paul started thinking that a milder climate would improve his condition. So he decided to pack up his things and move to Greece. During his time in Greece, Paul taught French and German language lessons in order to provide himself with some cash to live on. Now, one of his students was an individual named Georgios Papahatis. And by the way, from now on, we're just going to call Giorgio George to make it more simpler. Paul and George seemed to get along very well, and Paul sort of appreciated him more than any of his other students. Over the course of the next year, Paul and George became very good friends. However, Paul's health started to rapidly fade. Now, knowing that his death was imminent, Paul decided to go to Italy. But before he left, he entrusted his loyal student, George, with a briefcase that contained his personal diaries and some notes. Without telling George what the notes were, Paul left him with the simple instructions that he should use the documents to improve his German by translating them from German to Greek. Following that, Paul said goodbye to his friend and left. A month later, in early 1924, Paul passed away from tuberculosis. So gradually over a period of 14 years, from 1924 to 1940, George started to read the diaries and notes and translate them. Now, initially, George believed that Paul had written a novel. Like his diary was like, oh, okay, he started reading it, and at the very beginning he talks about Anne. And then he goes into some weird, strange story about what happened to him while he was in a coma. And George, when he was translating it, initially thought, hey, this is a really weird way to write a novel. But as he continued to read it and translate it, he realized that what he was translating was actual events from the future. That during the year Paul was in a coma, he claimed to have traveled to the year 3906 AD and entered the body of another person. Now, during this time, Paul learned all about past events and even the history of the earth since he had slipped into a coma. The notes also stated that once Paul had recovered from his coma, that he didn't want to talk to anyone about his remarkable experience because he thought he would be considered crazy. So instead, he wrote everything he could remember down in his diary and the various notes. So shortly after World War II, George finally finished translating the notes and diary of Paul. He made some copies of it and gave it to some friends. Now, one of his friends was actually a Freemason, and he brought these translations and notes to his local lodge, where they all sat down and read and discussed the findings inside of it. Now, this book, this translated diary of Paul, was taken very seriously by the local Freemason's lodge, and according to George, they didn't want the information spread to anyone else. They considered the book to almost be holy, containing wisdom about the future of humanity, and it would be better to only keep it known to a few individuals. Finally, George said screw it, and in 1972, he decided to publish the translated diary and notes of Paul. George immediately came under attack by multiple people, and he lost his job because of it. Churches in the area started to call him a heretic and stated that the book needed to be burned, and that's what they did. Then, in 1979, the second edition of the book was published. However, again, the book disappeared, and it was hardly mentioned. Then, 22 years later, 
in 2001, an individual named Ranamanthes Anamasakis, who was a high-ranking member of the Masonic Lodge in Greece, decided to publish the book, but in sort of like a small scale. But he published it exactly as it was previously written. Then, in March of 2016, an author named Achilles Sirigos translated the diary from Greek to English and then published the diary of Paul, calling it Chronicles from the Future, the amazing story of Paul Dinah. All right. Now we are going to get into the juicy stuff. What the hell happened to Paul during his time while he was in that coma? But before we do, we're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So, Aaron, can you start us off by telling us what happened to Paul while he was in that coma? I sure can. All right. Now, everything that we're about to talk about comes straight from Paul's diary. It is his explanation as to what happened to him while he was in a coma. So, in this diary, Paul states that on the first day of his coma, that he woke up laying on a bed that was located in a strange room that resembled a hospital. However, everything around him sort of looked kind of different. Also, Paul stated that he was in a lot of pain, that his head was covered in bandages, and he couldn't really think right, like his thoughts were all over the place, and that his vision was a bit hazy. Over the next few days, Paul's pain starts to subside, and he notices that his vision starts to become clearer. As it does, he can't really put into words some of the equipment that he was seeing in the room. Also, outside of his window was a beautiful countryside. Eventually, some nurses come into his room, and they remove the bandages that are on his head. Paul then gets up and walks towards the mirror in his room to see, you know, what the hell the bandages were covering up. He was expecting to see, you know, some cuts or bruises or maybe even stitches. However, what Paul saw freaked him out. Standing and looking back at him in the mirror was not himself, but instead it was a young man that he did not recognize. Paul essentially was in someone else's body. Of course, this was a giant shock to him and he lost his shit. So much so that the hospital didn't have any nurses or doctors come into his room until he calmed down. Eventually, Paul ended up calming down, and some doctors ended up coming into his room to kind of talk to him. However, Paul stated that he initially couldn't understand their language, and he stated that after listening to him for a little while, he started to understand them because he recognized that their language was some sort of Scandinavian language, but it wasn't anything that he'd ever heard of before. Paul then states in his diary that he was allowed to get up and kind of walk around the hospital since he had calmed down. During his walk, Paul noted that everything in the hospital seemed unreal, that he didn't recognize the majority of the things in it. For example, he states that there is a place that he called the drawing room, which Paul can only describe as being some sort of waiting area that is very large and that everything in it is made out of some sort of clear crystal. Over the next few days, Paul interacts with the doctors and nurses, just kind of like listening to them and going along with the certain tests and various things that they were doing on him. Now, it was during this period that he learns that the man's body that he is in is an individual named Andreas Northman. Paul also learns that this Andreas guy had gone to the hospital after a horrible accident and Andreas had actually died. 
but the doctors were able to revive his body by somehow freezing his brain. Something else that Paul learned during this time, which was another giant shock to him, is that he was actually in the year 3906. Over the next few days after that occurs, Paul tries to lay down and go to sleep, but is unable to. Eventually, the doctors and nurses notice this and start paying more close attention to him. The hospital staff start running tests on Paul and cannot figure out why he is unable to sleep. Following that, two elderly men dressed in fine white clothing come into Paul's room. Paul then quickly learns that these two elderly men are called electors and that they are the spiritual leaders of this futuristic society that he is currently now living in. Now, just a side note here, but during this entire time, Paul has not mentioned to anyone that he is actually a man named Paul, and that somehow his consciousness was somehow inhabiting the body of Andreas. The reason Paul had not told anyone about this is because he didn't want to become some scientific experiment. However, these two elderly men somehow made Paul feel comfortable enough to tell them exactly what he had been keeping a secret, that he was actually a man named Paul from 1921, and he doesn't know how the hell he got here in another man's body. So after Paul tells the two elderly men that, they're kind of shocked, but to Paul's surprise, they actually believe him. They tell Paul that time is just an illusion, and they assure him that everything is going to be okay. The two elderly men then leave, and Paul then starts to feel that, hey, maybe everything is going to be okay. As time continues to pass, Paul starts to get curious and decides to start learning everything he can. So one of the electors, aka the old-ass spiritually woke men, starts teaching him their language. Paul notes in his diary that in the classroom he is given some type of weird device that can narrate books and can bring pictures to life. Which, just a side note, that sounds just like an iPad or TV. However, those didn't exist back then. The TV was invented in 1927. And of course, the iPad was invented way, way, way past that. Yeah, so he had never seen a TV before because he came from 1922. They didn't get invented until 27. So that's the first pretty weird thing in his diary. Anyways, continuing on. So during these teaching sessions, Paul starts asking the elector about what happened during the years between 1921 and to the current year that they're living in, 3906. However, the elector warns Paul that he shouldn't focus too much on historical facts and instead should pay attention to the bigger picture. Now, another thing that is stated is that the elector knows that only a few people truly know who he actually is, meaning that only a few people in this world know that you were truly a man named Paul from 1922. But it is not up to us, up to the electors, to decide whether to tell the world about this significant event, because they view this as being like super significant. The elector states that it is ultimately up to what is called the Valley of the Roses to determine whether the entire world is going to know that, hey, a man from 1922 is living in this guy's body. Now, even though the elector stated that about the Valley of the Roses, he doesn't really explain what the hell the place is or when Paul can go visit it. A couple days later, Paul receives a visit from an individual named Stefan who is one of Andreas' best friends. Stefan immediately notices that something is off with Andreas and figures out that someone else is in his friend's body. 
However, he seems to be okay with it and decides to keep it a secret. A short while later, Paul is discharged from the hospital, and Stefan takes him under his wing to show him around and teach him about the current world. So Paul learns that he lives in this beautiful countryside somewhere in Scandinavia, and no one that lives there has any jobs, that they instead just spend the majority of their time just doing whatever they want, kind of like enjoying life. So Paul asked Stefan, hey, is a bunch of commies living here? What's No, he didn't say that, but he said, hey, <laughs> Stefan, why does no one work? I mean, is it just a 24-7 vacation for everybody? Is everybody the elite around here? Are we like in the rich neighborhood? So Stefan said, no, 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 no. The reason no one works is because they have already worked. And he goes on to tell him about what is called the two-year service. Stefan goes on to explain that everyone graduates school at 17, and then they spend ages 17 to 19 in a city working at whatever job is assigned to them. Now, during those two years, they make enough money to live out the rest of their life doing whatever they want to. Paul then asks if Stefan can take him to one of these cities so that he could see it, in which Stefan agrees. Would you do that if offered? I think everybody would. I, kind of, but then I feel like I'd be way too bored. No, I could never get bored. I mean, you got all these fun, cool projects to do, right? So you work yeah, two true. years, you make enough money. That's what's going to happen when robots come in the future, by the way, and they take over production. You're going to have a two-year service. That's coming. Guarantee. I think it'd be worse than that. Hmm. It's better than working 60 years of your life and having like five years for retirement, if you're lucky, right? Anyways. All right, so Stefan, of course, like Dan stated, he agreed to take Paul to one of these cities. So together, they travel up north to a place that is called Norfor. Now, in this city, Paul states that he sees flying vehicles, giant floating towers, and lake shores lined with marble, as well as 3D picture theaters and giant boards with changing pictures on them. Now, over the next few months, Paul, Stefan, and a few other individuals go on boat rides, take long walks talking about philosophy, and pretty much just enjoying life. During that time period, Paul learns about the history of the world and what has happened since 1921. Now, just a side note, we are going to go over all those details here in a bit, but let's finish up Paul's little journey first. All right, so continuing on. Now, after a few months of enjoying their time together, Paul is eventually told by the electors that Paul has to go visit the Valley of the Roses, in which that would be the deciding factor if Paul was going to tell the world about who he really was or is. So Paul describes in his diary that after that meeting with the elector and being told you have to go to the Valley of the Roses, that he gets on a large flying boat and travels down an artificial river in Europe that leads all the way down to the Mediterranean. The floating boat eventually reached a big city in the middle of the Mediterranean that is full of lush gardens, rivers, and rose bushes. Paul discovers that this city is actually home to the world's spiritual elite, which is a class of people who have devoted themselves to studying things like philosophy and science. Here in this beautiful city, Paul spends his time learning and thinking about various things. Eventually, Paul's mind ends up wandering back to his old love, Anne. It was at this moment that all the emotions and love that he had had for her came in waves and sort of overwhelmed him. 
It was at that moment that Paul realized that his love for Anne still existed, that even in another plane of time, in another person's body, that it still existed. This realization takes over Paul's entire body, and suddenly he feels tired and he lays down. For the first time in a year, Paul falls asleep. When Paul wakes up, he is in the year 1922, one year since he fell into a coma. And that is what happened to Paul when he fell into a coma, according to his diary. Now we're going to get into some more juicy stuff, which are the events that Paul wrote down in his diary that occurred between the year 1922 and 3906. However, before we get into those, we're going to take our last break. We will be right back. Don't go anywhere. All right. Welcome back. So, Dan, can you start us off and tell us what occurred between the years 1922 and 3906 in human history? Fill us in. I would love to do that. So we're going to start off with the years 2000 to 2300. At this point, humanity is struggling with the problems of overpopulation, ecological destruction of the environment, economic inequality, bad monetary system, lack of proper nutrition for all people, and wars in small places. Which, by the way, that sounds exactly like what's going on in the world today. Yeah. I just wanted to point that out. All right. Um, so another thing that occurred in the year 2204 is that the world had actually, at this point, completed a major project. That they had actually had completed the colonization of Mars and that there were over 20 million people living there. However, in the year 2265, which was 61 years later, there was a major natural disaster on Mars that kills all 20-plus million people. It was at that point that humanity never attempted to colonize Mars again. Now, I just want to reiterate again. He wrote about that in 1922. What are we talking about now? Colonizing Mars. Crazy. It sucked that all those 20-plus million people died, by the way, yeah. in the year 2265. That sucks. I mean, supposedly they're finding like some glass on Mars now. Oh. Could be from them. <laughs> All right, so tell us about this next year. All right. In 2309, as a result of the accumulated and unresolved problems, a destructive world war occurs, killing millions of people. A large part of civilization as we know it simply ceases to exist. This is getting depressing. Oh, yeah. Then, in the year 2396 there is a great change that leads to the final establishment of a world parliament of global nations, or a.k.a. State of the Earth Union. Kind of sounds like the New World Order. Um, but this world parliament, although elected by the vote of nations, it isn't run by politicians or businessmen. It is actually ran by scientists and humanitarian figures. So there you go. You got scientists and humanitarians running the world instead of uh, politicians or businessmen or businesswomen. Don't want to exclude them. In 2400 to 2600, cyber activist groups threaten world government through computer regimen invasions. In 2600, the private sector and national governments play a minor role in the world affairs as people gain a planetary consciousness. In the years 2600 to 3300, most humans begin to communicate telepathically. And this is a point when science starts making startling discoveries about certain things, such as the planet's interior, and that Earth 
the interior of it actually has a sun and actually a internal environment, which I find that very odd that he stated that in his diary because that is one of the theories that we talk about in Hollow Earth that wasn't really mainstream until like the 70s or 80s or actually brought to attention, you know, when Admiral Richard E. Byrd mentioned his uh, experience. But anyways, continue on. Tell us about this next year, Dan. In 3382, a remarkable phenomenon occurs in mankind. People, one after another, suddenly acquire a new spiritual ability that could be called hypervision or hyperintuition. Access is directly granted to the great spiritual light or direct knowledge with extremely powerful and clear creative powers. Humans unlock the true power of their spirit and manage to do incredible things such as control the chemicals within their bodies that affected their emotions. Sounds like Annie would, or Anna, would be totally down with that. Right. All right. So in the years 3400 to the year 4000, this is when a new quote-unquote golden age ends up dawning on humanity after nearly 1,000 years of quote-unquote dark ages. Everything in society is free. Everything such as clothing, accommodation, food, transportation, everything. There is no private property and only inequalities are honor and reputation. And everybody lives however they want, sort of like a utopia. And that is the last thing that Paul mentions in his diary about the future. Because, I mean, you got to think he goes to 3906. He doesn't know what happens after that, right? So Yeah. He ended up going straight to the Golden Dawn era. Good for him. I like that. It would have sucked if he would have went to Mars during the colonization of it and got wiped out. I mean, from what it seems like, if he finally went to sleep, he came out of the coma. So if he did get wiped out, he probably would have went right back to his original body. All right. So that's the story of Paul Dynak, right? He's a professor who ends up getting this encephalitis lethargica. He ends up falling into a coma for 14 days. Then a few years later, the encephalitis lethargica enters the chronic stage. He falls into a coma for a year. He ends up experiencing this entire different futuristic world in another person's body. Ends up uh, being spiritually awakened and realizing that love is forever in this Valley of the Roses. Ends up waking up back in the hospital, which is, of course, is a year later. And he doesn't really tell anybody about his experience. Like, he doesn't share with anybody what had occurred to him during his coma. Kind of just keeps it to himself. And then right before he died is when he actually wrote his diary out. Well, he had multiple diaries, but the actual information about what happened to him in his coma, he writes right before he passes away. And uh, like I said, that is the story of Paul, his life, how he traveled to the future and everything that happened. Now, as strange as that was, this story doesn't stop here because now we're going to get into strange facts and findings. So, Dan. Can you start that off for us? Of course. So our first strange fact and finding is about a similar story that happened to a British man named Alpha Kabija. So it was late afternoon on a rainy and mild New Year's Day in 2012, and 29-year-old Alpha was cycling down a street in North London. He was on his way to visit his girlfriend and was in a hurry, so he wasn't wearing a helmet. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Alpha was hit by a van. Alpha was then rushed to the hospital where they didn't see any serious injuries on the outside of his body. However, a CT scan revealed that he had a subdural hemorrhage inside of his brain and that the van had hit his head so hard 
that it had knocked his brain out of place inside of his skull. So Alpha spent the next three weeks in a medically induced coma, during which surgeons removed a portion of his skull to relieve swelling. When he eventually came out of the medically induced coma, he was asked if he had remembered what had happened to him, in which he stated that he remembered that he was going to see his girlfriend, that she was pregnant with their twins. He remembered tucking the picture of the twins' ultrasound in the pages of his notebook, one he used to write down song ideas and thoughts. Alpha even stated that he remembered the names that he had picked out for his twins, Sky and Nikita. He also remembers that the day of the accident, cycling to his girlfriend's apartment, and had previously been at a job interview, which was to be the assistant to the director of the operations for MI6, which is sort of like the CIA, by the way. And he would be working for a man named Michael Mitchells. Alpha stated that he thought the interview had gone very well, and he remembered that he owned a small private plane as well. Now, this was great and all. And if you didn't know Alpha, you would be like, whoa, this dude didn't have any issues with his memory from the accident. That's great. However, there was an issue. None of those things were true, and no matter how many times his family or other individuals tried to explain that to Alpha, he did not believe them. There was no pregnancy, no private plane, and no job interview with the MI6. Now, Alpha and Paul are not alone in this, because there are multiple people around the world that this has happened to, where people go into a coma or go in some sort of unconscious state, and they live out pretty much an entire life, and then they come back to from this coma or consciousness, and none of it happened. Now, there is one particular post that we're going to talk about that is a pretty popular one, and I've mentioned it before on this show, but this post comes from the website Reddit, and an individual went to that website and posted a story about what happened to them. So the individual starts the story off that it all started for him during his last semester at college that he was just randomly knocked out by a giant football player. While unconscious, he met a woman, was happily married, and experienced the birth of two children. Every day he walked into his children's room and spent time with them before leaving for work. He had a great job, a beautiful relationship with his wife, and detailed emotional memories connecting him to this family. Eventually, one day, he noticed that a lamp in his house looked strange. It was inverted. It just looked off. So he spent the following days on the couch, just staring at the lamp, trying to figure out why it looked the way it did. He stopped eating, drinking, and even using the bathroom. He did nothing but just sit there and stare at the lamp. His wife grew worried and brought someone to the house to talk to him. Before taking the kids to her mother's house because she got upset with them, then he realized the lamp was not real. Nor was the house, the wife, or the kids either. All of a sudden, he woke up to voices, screams, and a police officer picking him up and putting him in his car to go to the hospital since he had just gotten knocked out. Mere minutes had passed for the observers who saw him get knocked out. Like it was minutes. However, in his unconscious state, he had lived an entire decade of life. None of it truly happened. 
So this individual stated that he had spent the next years of his life in a state of depression, trying to cope with the loss of a family and kids and wife and all his loved ones, and that he truly believed it was real. And I had to include that in the strange facts and findings. Damn. Because those two things are weird. The Alpha story and uh, that Reddit story. Crazy. You know, before my dad passed, I asked him when they uh, put him in an induced coma. When he woke up, I asked him if he, if he dreamt anything, remembers anything at all. He was like, no. He just remembers going to sleep and then just waking up there with us there. You know what? It's funny you mention that. Because our next strange fact and finding is about individuals being in a coma or just being in a coma in general. So I haven't been in a coma. Have you ever been in a coma? I have not. So we started wondering what it would be like. Is it like a scary, long sleep paralysis? Are you kind of like floating above your body? Do you feel like you've slept for a long time? So to answer these questions, we actually came across some individuals who had been in a coma and described their experiences. And we're going to go over a few of those. So, Dan, start us off with the first one. One individual said, and we quote, When I was 12, I had meningitis, but it was misdiagnosed as stomach flu. I was taken to the hospital last minute, and the last memory I had was falling asleep while watching the emergency news on TV. I had no awareness of time at all. It's like going to sleep and just waking up what feels like a second later, but it's actually morning already. And you said that's how your dad felt, pretty much? That's exactly how he felt. That's how I felt whenever I had my surgery on my arm, whenever I was put under. Oh, yeah. It was just me getting put under, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, I have somebody whispering in my ear, Aaron, Aaron. It's a freaking male nurse. Aaron, I'd been asleep for like five hours after surgery. And he was like, something may be wrong with him. And I freaked out. I didn't have my contacts in. I didn't know what, who the hell he was. All I heard was somebody whispering Aaron and turn. I see a giant figure next to me. So sitting there in my gown, I kick the little rolly cart that's in front of my gurney that I'm laying on. Kick that. It goes flying across and hits the round table where all the nurses and doctors are. And I push him. And he's like, oh, calm down, calm down. You're at the hospital. You're okay. Damn. And there I am standing there like sort of in a daze, my dick out and everything because my robe had gown robe had caught on the thing, you know. The security was called. He's got a weapon. <laughs> Story of my life. <laughs> no, like, when I had my hand surgery, like I said, I just remember going into the back room and them putting that weird-ass cuff on my arm to stop the blood circulation and shit. Then nurse was talking to me, and the next thing you know, I'm waking back up talking to her again after the surgery. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, that's weird. It's like, okay. I don't know what happened. Yeah. All right. So the next person uh, stated, and we quote, I was in a medically induced coma for three days during my cancer treatment. My identical twin brother died around a year prior, also to cancer. The entire time I was in a coma, I was with him. We were in a large green field with a lot of sun, and my conversations with him felt real. Other than that, I didn't hear any of my family talking to me while I was asleep. I do wonder whether my interactions with my twin brother were real 
or if it was just the drugs I was given by the hospital that was causing these memories. That's a very interesting take, which, honestly, the next one seems extremely scary to me personally. All right, and the last one says, and we quote, My daughter was in a medically induced coma for two days from a drowning accident. She made a full recovery, but the things she told us freaked me out. She told us she played mermaid tea party with my dead parents. The after effects have been extremely weird. Mentally, physically, and emotionally, she is okay, but she now sees ghosts. Dude, she drowned and said that she played mermaid tea party with her grandparents who were dead. wonder how old she was. Well, I'm only assuming she had to be young if she's playing tea party. Now, that story freaked me out. But honestly, it didn't freak me out as much as this next strange fact and finding that uh, I happened to come across. Okay. Are you ready for this? Because this one is absolutely terrifying. Lay it on me. All right. So I came across this while looking into comas and I figured I would mention it. So get this. In 1983, a 23-year-old guy named Rom Huben, who was a Belgian former engineering student, got into a bad car accident. He was rushed to the hospital where the doctors evaluated him and stated that there's nothing we can do. He is in a vegetative state. So for the next 23 years, the hospital had Rom on life support, thinking that he could not feel or hear anything. However, they were wrong. So in 2006, a neurologist was doing some sort of new state-of-the-art scans on patients that are in vegetative states to see their brain activity, right? Because they wouldn't have any if they were in a vegetative state, right? That is when ROMs was scanned and they were like, whoa, he's not in a vegetative state, you know? He's actually conscious and could hear everything that was going on around him. But since his body was paralyzed, he had no way to communicate with anyone for 23 years. So, Rom was actually able to get physical therapy after that, which has helped him with his movements. And now he uses his finger to touch a computer pad on his wheelchair. And that's how he communicates with everyone around him. Now, this is an interesting quote because Rom was asked, hey, how was it? living for 23 years, being unable to communicate with anyone. And he said, and we quote, for 23 years, I... (laughs) Is that how he sounded? (laughs) For 23 years, I sat there, trapped in my mind. I screamed, but there was nothing to hear. I coped with being trapped in my own body by meditating. I had traveled with my thoughts into the past or into another existence altogether. I was only my consciousness and nothing else. Imagine how scary that is. 23 years stuck in your mind, being unable to communicate with anyone, unable to blink, unable to move, unable to do anything. What's even scarier is that for 23 years, he probably sat there wondering when they were going to pull the life support on him. Yeah. And he couldn't tell them no. He couldn't. Like, I'm here. He could hear everything that they were saying. Dude, that is a very scary thought. Yeah. wonder if he saw any shadow people. Ooh, 
which is our Patreon episode. And uh, you can go over to our patreon.com forward slash theories of the third kind and listen to our episode today, which is over shadow people. It's very good. Yeah. All right, Dan. So tell us about our next strange fact and finding. All right. So our next strange fact and finding is about a study that took place in 2010 in Sweden. During his study, the researchers asked several well-trained subjects to repeatedly think about taking a short walk in a familiar environment in either the imagined past, the real past, the present, or the imagined future. They were also told to keep the area and content the same, but only change the mental time in which it occurred. So as the subjects were imagining these certain walks during various mental times, they were having their brains scanned at the same time so that these researchers could identify which areas of the brain are correlated with thinking about the same event at different time periods. Now, the results showed that certain regions of the left lateral cortex, left frontal cortex, and cerebellum were activated differently when the subjects thought about the past and future compared to the present. So notably, brain activity was very similar for thinking about all of the non-present times, the imagined past, real present, and imagined future. So they were able to figure out, hey, by looking at your brain scan and you thinking about an event, we can tell if that event was in the past, present, or future just by where the brain activity was. Interesting. The future is now, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Future is in 3906. Yeah. All right, Dan. So tell us about our last strange fact and finding before we hop into theories. All right. So our last strange fact and finding is about Giorgio's Papahatis, the student who was first given Paul's diary and his notes, who translated and first published it. Now, we dug into this and found out that he actually had accomplished quite a bit. So get this. He was the professor of administrative law at Pantheon University from 1943 to 1967. In 1947, he served as secretary of the Greek administration, and he was also the vice president of Parnassus Literary Society. So, yeah, he was actually a real person. He really did exist. And he really published the book. And he had uh, some bona fide accomplishments. Merits. Achievements. Yeah. You know? All right, so let's transition into our theories, which we have one, two, three, four, five, six, six theories, and they're all actually pretty good. All right, so I'll start with the first theory, which is probably the most common one that people think when they think about this story, is that the entire thing is fake and that it's made up. Now, when we say fake or made up, there are many different avenues that this theory could be. Now, one of them is that um, George actually made these up and tried to pass them off as Paul's diary entries after Paul passed away. And George thought that maybe he could get like some quick cash or maybe some quick notoriety from it. However, there was giant backlash for him publishing the book and he decided not to pursue it any further. Now, that's the first route we could go with that if it was truly fake and made up. Now, there's another route to this theory, which is that in 2016, Achilles, the guy who published the book, uh, didn't translate it correctly. He translated it wrong, but purposely as sort of a way to hype it up 
kind of like to get a cash grab, right? To say, hey, this guy's diary, it's fake. Or, hey, this guy really traveled to the future. I'm going to hype it up, but not tell everybody he's hyping it up, but that this really happened. Those are two routes you could go if it was fake. Now, there's a last route you could go with this theory if it was fake. And Dan, tell us about this one. Now, the last alternative route to this theory is that maybe the original diary entries that Paul first included about Anne were correct. However, the story that he wrote later on about what happened to him during the coma was completely made up. Essentially, Paul had made up the entire story as a tool for him to escape his reality instead of dealing with his current heartbreak. He gives his diary to George as a way to help him with his language skills in translating, not thinking that George would think that the story that he wrote in his diary was actually true. However, that it is exactly what George thought. So pretty much, hmm. this fake or made-up theory is that either George, Paul, or that guy who published it in 2016, one of them faked it just as a way to get cash. I mean, I could kind of see that. Eh, kind of, but I don't really know, you know? Hmm. I mean, I do like to think that Paul made the story up as a kind of tool to escape his reality, to deal with this heartbreak, because when you do look at his diary and you read what he writes about Anne, dude, he is like obsessed with her. Almost to the point to where I wonder if she actually loved him and if he might have been a stalker and uh, she ended up marrying the other guy, but Paul couldn't take it. So he stated in his diary, oh, she didn't want to marry that other guy. I don't know. Just another theory. So in his mind, it was playing out a different way. But in reality, it was totally different. Yeah. And then he used his story in the coma as a way of like a novel about what happened to him going into the future and kind of like wrap everything up with his love for Anne and all that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's go on to the next theory, which is that this entire thing, Paul's consciousness traveling to the future and then coming back to 1922, that it is all true. Now, some would argue and point to the fact that Paul wouldn't have known what TVs were or about future technologies, and they would say, hey, this was true because look at how accurate the descriptions of things were that he stated that didn't even exist yet. And they would point at that as sort of like proof that this really happened. Now, another thing to point at is that he couldn't have assumed or known at all, like we stated before, that at some point in time, we would eventually take interest in Mars of all places, right? The planet Mars. And that we would try to, well, at least now, talk about colonizing it. Yeah. So that alone would have been quite a, like a toss-up guess, right? Especially around that time in the 1920s. Hmm. Yeah. So... Go on with this theory. Elaborate a little bit more on it for me, Dan. Now, let's say this theory is true and that really did happen. Let's talk about how it could have happened. Well, what if our consciousness is non-local, that it can exist independent of the physical brain and that the time is not exclusively linear but exists all at one? 
all ages, all times, everything, it is all happening at the same time. That it is only our human perception that makes it seem that it has bounds, when in reality, it doesn't. Maybe our physically human body cannot travel outside of the timeline, but our human consciousness can, and that is where we go when we die. That's my favorite one so far. I do like that one. All ages, all times, everything is happening at the same time. And that is our human body and flesh perception that makes it seem like it has bounds, when in reality it doesn't. And that when we die, we can travel during any of those times. And that's why you see shadow people, because they're actually people who have passed away that's just traveling around. Boom. Patreon exclusive episode. Shameless plug. All right. Uh, so let's go on to the next theory, which is pretty, it's pretty short. Self-explanatory. This next theory is that it was all just a dream. That when Paul was in a coma, this entire thing was just a very vivid dream. And his mind kind of made it up, made this dream up as a way for itself to cope with what was happening. I don't know. This one's hard. I can't really say, yeah, because, I mean, I've never been in a coma. I mean, yeah, we read stories, but some people didn't have any dreams. Some people did. It's really hard to say if this one's true or not. Yeah. All right, Dan, so tell us about this next theory then. All right. This next theory is that Paul's consciousness actually traveled to a parallel universe and inhabited another body. That somehow something got messed up and his consciousness decided to float around and automatically end up in a parallel universe in that young kid's body, who had just passed away from his accident. That is a very interesting theory. His consciousness is just floating around when he goes into this coma. It enters into a parallel universe and then enters into Andreas's body who had passed away and the uh, doctors said that they revived him. But it seems like uh, Paul's consciousness entered Andreas's body and that's when they revived him. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. It just made me think, like, say, what if he was traveling around, you know, not really knowing what he's doing and when they revive someone, whosoever's consciousness is the closest pulls it in. That'd be pretty interesting. I like that. I like that. Okay, Dan. Okay. So, like, that's why he, because, I mean, he didn't see the body. If he's traveling around and all of a sudden he ends up in that body, I mean, he could have been just traveling, not even knowing it. Then when they revived the guy, his consciousness was the closest one. And, I mean, without consciousness, your body's not going to do anything. Just a shell, pretty much. Yeah. So it pulled him in. He was uh, unaware that he was astral projecting with his consciousness. Yeah. And Andreas decided to go astral project since he was dying. But he didn't get back to his body fast enough. It's like, uh, what's that game? So that's why they're shadow people. They're the ones that are lost in astral projection. Yeah. So, you know, like the game where there's all those chairs and you have to like walk around it. When the music stops, you get in your chair. Oh, musical chairs. Yeah, sort of like that. Okay. Musical chair theory. But, uh... <laughs> But Andres, Andres, or whatever the hell his name is, didn't get back to his chair in time. No. And Paul stole it from him. And everyone just forgot about Andreas, and they're like, oh, we got Paul now. All right, so tell us about this next theory, Dan. All right, this next theory is that, what if the reality we are living in now is just the dream state? That whenever we pass away, that is when we enter into the true reality that we are supposed to be in. That what Paul experienced was a true reality. Sort of like how people in our DMT episode stated that during their DMT trip, 
This reality feels fake and the reality that they enter in feels realer than the current reality that they are living in. Okay. The only issue I see with that is that they stated what the year was, 3906, and they described the history of the Earth. So it wouldn't have been... They wouldn't have been in a fake reality. It was just further in that reality. Same reality he's in, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Now, this last theory is probably my favorite. Okay. Let us have it. All right. So this one is a little bit out there. And this last theory is about aliens. Okay. So during the winter of 1916, like we stated, they had a encephalitis lethargica outbreak. Over the years, scientists have studied the origins of this outbreak and have concluded that this encephalitis lethargica, it is an infectious virus, but they weren't sure where it originated from. Some kind of like speculate that it somehow came from the influenza virus that had mutated, but to this day, they aren't 100% sure. So this theory is that what if aliens created this encephalitis lethargica virus as a way to get individuals to fall into a coma so that they could somehow, in turn, make one's consciousness susceptible to be programmed or tested on? Or maybe that Paul's experience was just aliens doing tests on human consciousness and trying to figure out how to control it. So to put it in simpler terms, aliens made encephalitis lethargica as a way for them to get humans to fall into a coma so they could study human consciousness while it is in this coma state. Hmm. And that's what Paul was. He was just a subject of an alien experiment. A lot of people were during that time. And everyone who falls into a coma is. And some are able to remember it and some aren't. Just like when people are um, taken for alien experiments, right? Yeah. Some remember, some don't. So there you go. That's that theory. It kind of makes me think the military. Yeah. Or at least the government. Yeah. They're the ones who made it to test consciousness? Yeah, that they're the ones doing it and they're doing the testing as well. Considering all the sleep studies they do and shit. Yeah, but my thing is, I was in, like, the 20s. Now, if it was in the 70s that this happened during, like, the Project MK Ultra, I would say that would be plausible. But since it was in the 20s, I, I can't, I don't see that as happening. I see it more of, like, an alien race or something, you know? I mean, back then they were probably just more like, let's create a disease to knock them out. But nowadays they just got drugs to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that was our last theory. And now we are going to transition into personal thoughts and theories. All right, Dan, tell me what your personal thought is behind this entire story of Paul Dynak. Do you think it actually happened? Do you think he made it up? What do you think? I'd probably say that the part with Anne is real in the diary. The rest of it, honestly, when it's something like that, it seems very personal. Why would you give it to someone that you've been teaching, like, here, take this diary of mine of all my personal stuff in it and use it as practice to translate from German French to Greek? I just don't see that as being a thing, really. I mean, honestly, I'd want my diary to go with me 
no one to read it. That's why it's personal. Yeah. So I think he made up this story. Like he probably, he started this diary and then he just started filling out shit. Just making up stuff like, you know what, we could use this to help him learn to translate better. So he made up this story. And since he started off with Anne in the beginning of it, he ended with Anne at the end of it. What about this? What if he started off his diary, which you can go get the book, which I have it on a PDF files. You can find it on a PDF file for free on DuckDuckGo. Um, But you read the first part of the diary, and it's nothing but stuff about Anne and how much he loved her and growing up and what happened to her and all that. And then it transitions, it takes big leaps in years, and it transitions to him talking to the priest, and then it transitions to him after his one-year coma, and he starts explaining that, hey, I'm in bad health. I need to tell my story of what happened about me being in a coma so it is known, right? Mm -hmm. So what if that was just a made-up story, like a love story? And the reason he gave it to George was... He initially wanted to publish that love story as kind of like a token memoir. Yeah, token to Anne, right? That his love for her would, or their love for each other would live forever in a book. So he made all that shit up about him being in a coma and Anne and all that. And that's how he ended it with, oh, realization that she's always there with him and love is through eternity and timeless. Love triumphs. Yeah, and uh, he gave it to George thinking, hey, after he translates it, maybe he'll end up publishing it, and that's my best chance of getting a book published since I know I'm going to pass away soon, and I don't have time to uh, translate it and uh, publish it myself. So he wanted to leave his mark on the world. Yep. Okay. And that was a way. See, that I can believe. That's what I'm leaning towards, but I, man, part of me is like, in the diary, a lot of the things that he said, there was a lot of um, similarities to what has happened in the world today. Mars, TVs, you know, big screen 3D movie theaters. Mm. How did he know about any of that stuff, you know, back then? Lucky guess? Maybe. I don't know. But part of me truly believes that somehow consciousness is sort of like embedded within the fabric of our reality. And I'm not sure how the universe is embedded with consciousness. But I also believe that like all of the time that has happened will happen and is happening simultaneously at once. Like we've already experienced what we're going to experience in the future. Time is just a human concept like we were talking about earlier. It's a flesh and body concept. That there's no past, present, or future. In his diary, like he talks about like the cinema, the theater stuff, all that. But they had uh, projected moving pictures and stuff in like the 1880s. So that was a thing starting back then. So he was, you know, there when that stuff started. So he could have put in his diary, you know, stuff that he imagined would come to light. Yeah. Okay. So lucky guesses. Yeah. I mean, honestly, there are some. You know, people out there that prophesy stuff, you know, Notre Dame is, Baba Vanga. And we've done episodes over both of those, by the way. Yeah. And like some of the stuff is very vague, but some of it, you know, hits the nail on the head pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just think a lot of it's just you see hints of it in like 
you know, like think back in the day when you watched uh, Back to the Future, we're just like, shit, in this year, we're going to have hoverboards, you know. Okay, so you think as humans, we want to see similarities and be unique. Yeah. When in reality, we're just a drop in the bucket in the giant thing of the universe, right? Technically, yes. Okay. Hey, we're all different sizes, drops, and we all make a different size ripple in the world, so. And that ripple will turn into a wave. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Overall, I'm just kind of like, you know, this is a weird story. Super interesting. It's interesting. And uh, I just thought it'd be great to cover, you know? I hope the two-year service comes into play. <laughs> yeah, me too. And hey, don't call us a commie because of it. Okay? I just want to work two years and be done with it. Live the rest of my life just out there, you know. Doing podcasts. Shaking my ass. And doing the podcast, yeah. No, I mean, it was a good story. Interesting for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you got anything else you want to add to this story before we go on to or on the scene? I mean, other than the fact that I kind of want to read his diary now. I want to see how stalkerish he was about Anne. Oh, I'll send it to you when we're done with this. I have it on a PDF file. All right. I'll email it to you. Because maybe he never really talked to Anne, or he did, but he was actually just a stalker, and he just wrote in his diary every day, oh, she looked at me today. She talked to me. <laughs> when I was reading that, it gave off some very serious stalker vibes. Like, he was talking about how, when he went over there, that she would give him gifts, books, and colored pencils and stuff like that, and he would sit and listen to her mother read books while she was sitting next to him and that whenever he went off to college whenever he came back two years later she was still in school but she had turned into a woman that makes me think this dude may be a pedophile man like how young was Anne? you know what i mean or if Anne actually existed that's what i'm like it's kind of put in my head, like, maybe he created this Anne, the ideal woman. Maybe, man. I don't know. It's all weird. Hey, I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode, ladies and gentlemen, and aliens and Bigfoots, elite reptilian lizard people. Send me an email, or Dan an email. You can send it to either one of us. You can send it to Aaron at theoriesofthethirdkind.com, or you can send it to Dan at theoriesofthethirdkind.com. Let us know what you think of this episode. Let us uh, know if you think Paul's a stalker or if he truly traveled to the future. We would love to hear your theories about it. All right, so that is the end of the episode, and now we are going to transition to our On the Scene. So if you're not familiar with our On the Scene, it is where an individual, which can be a listener or whomever, um, takes their phone or a microphone and goes out and interviews an individual in public, or it could be a family member or whoever, and asks them about certain questions about current conspiracy happenings in the world today. Now, anybody can do this. Yes, you, including you, the listener. Just record a maximum of two minutes of uh, an interview and send it to our emails, and we will put it in queue for, you know, whichever episode it comes up on, because we only play one a week. So this week, we do not have it on the scene. It is a little different. We got an audio message from an individual named Shayna who talks about her personal theories 
when it comes to the Elite, Adrenochrome, and other various things. Now, it's a little bit longer than two minutes. I think it's like four minutes long, but it is excellent and it is worth a listen. So we're going to take a listen to that right now. Hey, all you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are. This is Shayna, and I have a theory. My theory is that a lot of movies are just documentaries. A lot of people already believe the Matrix is real, but I think it goes way further than that. I think it's plausible that Hollywood is making movies to confuse us on what's really happening. Let's take a look at a few Disney movies. The first one I want to talk about is Monsters, Inc. In the movie Monsters, Inc., the monsters, who may represent the elites of society, obtain their source of energy through the fear of little children. Now, if you have ever went down the adrenochrome rabbit hole, then you might have read that it's best served drinking the blood from a child that is petrified and scared for their life. I think the scares might be symbolic of collecting adrenochrome. And this is how the elites stay in power. So essentially, Disney is subliminally telling us that, yes, this shit is definitely going on, but it's in a cute cartoon. So how would you ever know the difference? Then we have Wally. Wally takes place in a dystopian future. Earthlings ruined the planet and are forced to go on a five-year cruise to restore Earth's atmosphere. But it turns into 700 years. I don't know about you, but this is giving me major two weeks of flatten the curve vibes. We see in the movie that everyone has become completely brainwashed by the company by and large. <laughs> Amazon. By and large has made their life so convenient that they never need to leave their floating space chair. They rely on robots to do everything, even watching their kids. I'm looking at you, iPad babies. Even though they are constantly in communication with others on the ship through their social media, there's actually no human interaction. When a solution is found, the ship's artificial intelligence does everything it can to hide it. And they might be telling us that eventually AI will be so smart it will be able to fight for its own self-preservation. There are other movies that struck a chord with me as well. How about The Truman Show? I saw this as a kid, and I walked around suspiciously for weeks after that. I still catch myself wondering if there are hidden cameras everywhere. You know, there's a quote from the movie, and that's, We accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. It's as simple as that. Hmm. Maybe this is a hint and they are saying, yes, this is all just a big experiment. Maybe we are some stars for some alien Big Brother reality show. Maybe we think our technology is growing with the use of home smart devices, but really they are just installing new production equipment. But this also makes me think that the NSA could also be subconsciously making us aware that they are always watching us. So then I got to thinking about reality shows. I looked into when the first reality show started, and it was actually Candid Camera, and that was from 1947. However, in the last 20 years, there has been a ton of them. They are always popping up. What if this is some way to desensitize us into thinking it's completely normal to spy on people? We sit on our couches shoving our faces with foods that are filled with mind-dulling preservatives while we ingest the drama of other people. No plots, no storylines, just watching the real-life Truman Show. So there's also other shows and movies that I wanted to mention, but I won't go into too much detail to save time. But I was thinking about American Horror Story. Somehow they're always creating shows about things that might be going on, 
The last one was about drinking blood for creativity and Valiant Thor. Dexter, somehow they have us rooting for a serial killer because he only kills bad people. Men in Black, if you listen to theories of the third kind, this one should be self-explanatory. I also don't think it's a stretch to believe that apocalyptic shows are shown to, shown to us so that we don't believe these things could ever actually happen. I may not believe that all movies are actually non-fiction documentaries, but I do 100% believe Hollywood fucks with us through film and television, even if it's to just plant seeds of doubt in our own mind. And that is my mini theory. Hope you all enjoyed it. I love it. Mini theories. We got to add it to each week. Dude, that was pretty good. Individuals submitting their mini theories make it less than four minutes long each week. I like it. We're starting it. On the scene and mini theories. Listener submitted. Sure, we can switch it up every week. One week mini theories, next week on the scene. Yep, that's what we'll do. We're at, boom. We're taking a vote. I approve. I say yes. What do you say, Dan? I second it. Nice. It's approved. All right. Every other week, we're going to switch it up. One week, we'll have it on the scene. The next week, we'll have a mini theory. So if you want and you have a mini theory of your own, make sure it's less than four minutes and submit it to us. And we will uh, put it in our queue list. As long as it's not a theory that I'm an AI. It hurts my feelings. Dan is an artificial intelligence, okay? <laughs> All right. Uh, but besides that, hey, Shayna, love it. Yes. Love I love it. it. Um, I personally have never seen the movie WALL-E. Have you, Dan? I have. I actually like that movie just because I liked WALL-E himself. Okay. I'll have to see that. I'm going to add it to my list. Uh, by the way, before I go any further, I do want to say audio quality, very good. I always respect that. I love me some good audio quality. Talking, perfect. She had everything in row, okay? She knew what she was going to say. I, I love that. All organized, great thoughts and great theories, okay? So like I said, I I've never watched Wally. Uh, the Truman Show, have you seen that, Dan? I've seen bits and pieces, but never really watched it. I've seen it probably 80 times. I love that show. And just like Shayna, I walked around after seeing that thinking, hey, Am I in the Truman Show? Who is watching me? So then I got a little like paranoid. I'm thinking, are they watching me while I take a piss? So I like turn around and dangle my wiener out. You guys want to see that? Look at that show. I didn't do that. No. I mean, that's how I feel after I, I played The Sims for the first time. <laughs> really? I'm just like, is somebody out there like controlling us like The Sims? Ooh. And I like look out the window. I'm just thinking, are they watching me through this window? Do I show up blurry? <laughs> You know, she mentioned the reality show. Maybe aliens are just watching us and we're a reality show for them. Yeah. If they're really out there, I 100% believe that they're just watching us thinking, man, these freaking people are crazy. Oh, facts. Look at what they're doing, man. These prehistoric apes. Pretty much that's all we are. Prehistoric apes are out there running around killing each other over, you know, fake lines and land and beings that each other believe in, you know? True. Crazy. And also, she mentioned that the reality shows are made so that individuals who watch them, it like subconsciously makes them think that it's okay to spy on others so that the NSA can do it and it becomes like accepted by the normal population. Oh, oh yeah. Spying on others, you know, for your safety. That's of course. Oh yeah. We're listened to all the time by the NSA and the CIA and the FBI. I guarantee you they're listening to us right now. Yeah, they're listening to us for your safety. Yeah. And hey, if you're listening to us right now, turn off Discord. Yeah, so I thought, you're a bitch. 
All right. So um, I haven't seen Dexter. Have you seen Dexter? I have not seen Dexter. I hear it's really good. Yeah. And I haven't seen that uh, new American Horror Story season. I started watching season one, but I haven't, I haven't finished it yet. Okay. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your mini theory, Shana. Send us another one. And hey, if whoever wants to send us one, send it. We'd love to hear it. For sure. All right, so now we're going to go to shout-outs. So, Dan, uh, who do you have this week for shout-outs? Uh, honestly, I only have a couple for this week, considering running out on time. I only have two from Patreon, and then I have a couple from Discord, and that's it for this week. Uh, ben Riddle, 92, from Patreon, and Emmanuel M. from Patreon, then from Discord. Shout out to Shadow Conspiracy server on Daisy. I used to play Daisy back in 2014. Yeah, we we played it quite a bit. Yeah, back when it like very first came out. I haven't played it since. Yeah. Shout out to him. Then uh shout out to Squall to his sister Kira. You know, she recently lost her battle to cancer, but she was one of our listeners. She enjoyed the show. And she uh, seemed to be a good positive role model for people around her. Damn. Man, that's sad. So, shout out to the OG Trimley sibling. Shout out. Man, rest in peace. Damn. That's the last one of it. All right. So, my shout outs this week, uh, I'm going to shout out Tom. Specifically, his girlfriend, Vicky. He says she's a massive fan of the subjects you cover and loves your podcast. So shout out to Vicky and Tom, shout out to Ashley Farley, Derek, Juan Vicente, Frank Quartz, Rob Pugno, Connor Walton, Ashley Reese, Ashley Shepard, Jake Wigington, Trayson S, Gustavo, Mark Fitz, Lexi. Uh, then we got a message from a user named Mariah. She said, please, please do an episode over mermaids. We've already done an episode over mermaids. I think it's a Patreon episode, right? I think so. Yeah. Let's go check that out. Shout out to Jay Simpson from Yellowknife. He said, holla at you, boy. Well, there you go, Jay Simpson. I'm hollering at you, boy. Let's see. I got a few more on my personal one. Shout out to Rodrigo Juarez, Papa Reyes, Jory Webb. Emily, Vicky Anderson, Timmy, Nathan, Johnny, Damian, Keaton, and Clayton. And uh, two more shout-outs. I just want to shout-out everybody who uh, sent me love. Um, my, uh, I don't know if the regular listeners know this or not, if you're not a Patreon supporter. Uh, last week on Patreon, I told everybody that uh, the reason our episodes came out a little late is because my grandfather had passed away, and I had to go to Texas to visit him. So it kind of like delayed everything and everybody kind of sent me some love. And I really appreciate that. It means a lot, you know. So far since I've started this podcast, I've had uh, both of my grandfathers pass away. And uh, Dan, you've had your father pass away. Correct. So we've had quite a few loved ones pass away. It's difficult, but, you know, we're still managing to put out episodes and we want to thank you all for your support and everything. Yeah. You know, it means a lot to us. It seriously does. It really does. It, it helps us get through it. Yep. Um, so our last shout out is to Aaron G. 
It's her birthday today, March 17th. Happy birthday to you. I hope it is a great one. May you dance in the field of flowers forever. So sing it. Sing it, Dan. Sing it to her. Sing what? Happy birthday? Yeah. What else? You want me to sing happy birthday? Do it. I have a terrible singing voice. I'll say happy birthday. (laughs) There you go. So may you go to the Valley of the Roses with Paul. And may the elders, or is it electors? Electors, lather you with roses. And may your birthday be a great one. And hey, be safe, but have fun. We love you, and we're proud of you. Much love. All right, that's seen in my shout-outs. Let's see, do you have any announcements or anything before we roll out? I got nothing. All right, well, I want to thank you for joining us today. And again, thank you for your support. You are all amazing, every single one of you. So with that being said, Dan, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone.